This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, Maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, Just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. All right, welcome back to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I'm your host, Justin. Today is the Black Sox Scandal Part 2. Before we go on, I gotta thank some new Patreon subscribers. We got Kat Stewart and Carla Erickson. Thank you two very, very much. I hope you're enjoying the backlog of episodes. We have over a hundred on Patreon that are not on the regular feed. All kinds of stuff. Paranormal, weird stuff, mysteries, crime, everything. And we're always open to suggestions. Just pop in the Facebook group or send me a message or even email me. If you have a suggestion for Patreon, I'll be more than happy to, to do that for you. We have two, five, and ten dollar tiers. Go check it out. $10 tiers, please get a hold of me, email me. I've actually got a couple coming up because $10 tier is uh, video chats every month. So we can talk about whatever you want, crime, whatever. You can ask my personal opinion on shit. doesn't matter. It's whatever you want to talk about. And if you don't want to do Patreon, want to make a one-time donation, you can go to Venmo, at MC Podcast. And for the one-time donations, I have been known to also send you episodes, depending on what you want, whether it's crime, paranormal, weird stuff, whatever. Let me know what you want, and I'll send them to you right in your email. Also, gotta give a huge thank you to Gary Jones for lending me his voice on this episode. Thank you, Gary. Now that that is behind us... Let's go ahead and get on with this episode. During this series, while it's going on, there were sports writers and baseball players that did talk openly about it the entire time the series is going on. Comiskey, he had been told after the very first game that some of his ball players were crooked. But there was no real proof, there was no incentive, so why go any further? Comiskey's looking at it like, well, if there's no real proof, and word got out, either way, whether it's true or not, we're going to lose attendance, which means I'm going to lose money. So he just kind of just ignored it. He did take it to Ban Johnson, as you heard in part one. But Ban Johnson was kind of in the same mindset, except he hated Comiskey. Ban Johnson just thought it was Comiskey crying because they were going to lose the series and they wanted to suspend it and play it at a later date because they played like shit that first game, purposely, you know? So nothing got done about it. Now, 
that is a huge, huge factor when it comes to the trial and after that, the ban. Because some of these guys tried telling people and they were ignored and they were brushed off. And when we get to the cases of a couple of the guys on the team, it gets pretty sad towards the end. So after the series is over, all these rumors are still going on. They didn't go away. Now, there were a lot of reporters that looked the other way. But there was a very well-respected baseball writer by the name of Hugh Fullerton. He took it upon himself to get to the bottom of what happened, even after the series was over. He was actually the reporter that told Comiskey after game one that it was going on. And he got blown off too. So, so yeah, word was out. But there were a lot of people out there that didn't want to accept the fact that baseball games were fixed, let alone the World Series. That's a whole nother, for lack of a better term, that's a whole nother ball game right there. And I think one of the tougher things for Hugh Fullerton as a journalist and a sports writer was the fact that he was close with Charles Comiskey. He knew him. He was close with him. He was close with a lot of the baseball players as well. And he's trying to let them know what's going on. He's trying to get to the bottom of it, but he also has a little bit of a conflict of interest going on. Well, in the fall of 1919, Hugh Fullerton is starting to get mad about the fact that nothing is being done about this. All the rumors, everything. So he writes a series of articles exposing every single thing that he knew about the fix. But the kicker was that no newspaper in Chicago would touch those articles. They didn't want anything to do with them. So in December of 1919, Fullerton goes to New York, and he goes to publish these articles there. And this is also when a lot of the baseball owners go to New York to have their annual meeting, you know, to talk about the league, their teams, yada, yada, yada. Now, New York did publish a version of Hugh Fullerton's articles. From what I understand, it was a very watered-down version. And as soon as these things got released, Hugh Fullerton immediately gets attacked by everybody. And there was a quote from Baseball Magazine. They were talking about him, and it said, If a man knows so little about baseball that he believes the game is or can be fixed... He should keep his mouth shut when in the presence of intelligent people. That's how pissed off these articles made everybody. That is straight shit talking right there. So going on that, we know the baseball owners really didn't do anything. So now the gamblers are feeling more and more inclined because they're seeing it as, well, the owners didn't even do anything. The league didn't do anything. We made a shitload of money. So let's try to fix some more games. But on the flip side, there were a lot of baseball players who wanted to play honestly. And it was a slap in the face to them. And these guys couldn't play honest anymore. Because they either had teammates or a manager who was making some money off of the gamblers and willing to throw those games. So looking through the league with the owners, the players, managers... The honest ones are sitting here saying something needs to be done. So finally, Charles Comiskey, he knew what was going on, okay? He decides to throw up a smokescreen, and this is what they described it as in a, one of the documentaries I watched, and it's a perfect description for it, because he goes out and he offers $20,000 in 1919 money for anybody who can present evidence that games were thrown. But he also believed that if somebody could prove there was a fix, that his team that he had built up and put so much money into, not towards the players, but promoting it, everything that he had worked for would just be ruined. It would have been for nothing. So he's trying to keep everything quiet, but appear to the public and the media that he's trying to find out what's going on. And as you guys found out in part one, Charles Comiskey, oh man, after learning some of the things I learned <laughs> during this two-part series, just not really a great guy, kind of a piece of shit. So it's not really surprising. 
But several people did offer him information, or at least attempted to, and he still never paid a single penny to any of them, even though he had all these people bringing him information and all that stuff. But what he did worked. Then the 1920 season gets underway. The whole scandal with the World Series and the rumors and everything, it kind of gets put on the back burner because baseball started just exploding again. And the White Sox were good again. So everybody's just kind of sweeping it under the rug, kind of forgetting about it. But the 1920 season had more fixes, just in random games throughout the year. But the White Sox still made it to the top of the league. They were up there the entire season. This was about the time in baseball when home runs really started becoming a thing because you had guys like Babe Ruth coming into the league. So when you're talking about a fix, it doesn't matter. People are wanting to go to baseball games and watch people hit home runs. So to most of the fans of the sport, they don't care. They want to go see this high-energy, new home-run type baseball game. But still in Chicago, all of these allegations are still going on especially when spring training starts for the 1920 season and Chick Gandle never shows up. Now, if you remember in part one, Chick Gandle is the guy that pretty much orchestrated this entire thing from start to finish. He's the one who reached out to the gamblers, got the money, everything like that. So when he didn't show up for spring training, everybody starts talking. There's all this gossip going on. And they're saying that he skipped out on this season with at least $40,000 that was owed to the other players for the money they didn't get while they were fixing the series. All the other guys ended up showing up for the 1920 season, though. And at about the time the White Sox were going at Cleveland, they were battling for the pennant that year, all of the series talk just resurfaces like that. Super fast. Because in September of 1920, the president of the Chicago Cubs at the time, a guy named William Beck, he gets a telegram that says tomorrow's game is going to be thrown. After that, he was essentially the person who blew the first whistle when it comes to being an owner or a president who publicly says, okay, I just got this telegram, something's got to be done, we need to look into this. Then somehow the story got out. So reporters already had the story when William Beck announced that gamblers had attempted to buy some of his baseball players. And then the Cook County Grand Jury called for an immediate investigation into baseball corruption. Cook County being where Chicago is located. So the grand jury proceedings into William Beck's claims were started. But this was just the start of a whole domino effect. While all that was going on, all the prosecutors on this grand jury or whatever, they find out that there's a way bigger story out there. And that story is that the White Sox had conspired to fix the World Series the previous season. So they're not worried about this one game anymore. All of a sudden, the prosecutor's investigation just kind of shift gears and focus all their attention on the 1919 White Sox in the World Series. And then it all comes to a head when subpoenas were issued for baseball executives and a bunch of Chicago sports journalists. Comiskey starts freaking out a little bit. As the hearings start, the White Sox were only games away from winning the pennant. And unfortunately, they didn't make it because the full scandal broke before they could. But they also knew, without the testimony of anyone directly involved in this alleged fix, there wouldn't be enough evidence for the prosecutor to indict anyone. And there was one guy, and I'm kind of laughing, but there was one guy who was going to make sure this shit happened, and it was the American League president, Ban Johnson. He took it upon himself, and he hired some detectives because he hated Charles Comiskey that much. And he sends these detectives down into Texas, and they find a man named Sleepy Bill Burns, who was a gambler who had offered money to Chick Gandle. And Ban Johnson knew that his testimony, if he would testify, 
would ruin the Chicago White Sox. So he decides to bribe Sleepy Bill Burns to come back up to Chicago and testify. He was determined right, to ruin this guy and his entire team. He didn't give a shit. And while that's going on, the investigation gets another huge, huge boost. When a story appears in the Philadelphia North American with a bunch of accusations. Sleepy Bill Burns' buddy, Billy Mayharg, he gave an interview to a reporter and he laid everything out from the gambler's perspective. The article, there was a quote in there that said, It is revealed by one Billy Mayharg, sidekick of fixer Sleepy Bill Burns, that the 1919 World Series had indeed been fixed. And then Mayharg names Eddie Seacott as the ringleader of the fix. Seacott finds out and he meets up with Comiskey the next day and he straight up admitted fucking everything. He's like, yep, we did it. Here's the role that I played. I threw the game pitching. It definitely happened. So Comiskey, being the guy that he is, he's not going down without a fight either. He doesn't just hire a lawyer. He hires an entire law firm whose only concern was protecting Charles Comiskey and his franchise. And then Comiskey and his lawyer advised Eddie Seacott to appear before the grand jury and just tell them everything that he knew. And here's a cool little side fact. This is one of the first films ever made of grand jury hearing evidence in actual session. Was the grand jury involving the 1919 World Series. Pretty cool. So within hours, Eddie Seacott gets called to testify before the grand jury, and he breaks. He just breaks. And he's crying, and tears are flowing. He's, I did it for the wife and kids. I had to pay my mortgage. The whole testimony that Eddie Seacott gave is said to have been the most incriminating evidence. And then after he breaks, Joe Jackson voluntarily testified twice. And during one of his testimonies, he said that after the series, he tried to tell Charles Comiskey what he knew, and Comiskey wouldn't listen to him and just blew him off. So he had actually testified in front of that grand jury that he told Comiskey what was going on. Comiskey didn't give a shit. For the record, Joe Jackson did show up drunk to the grand jury hearings. He was crying a lot. He was very remorseful. But he did admit that he took $5,000 in an envelope that was given to him by Lefty Williams. But he also stated that he played to win, that he didn't do anything to make the White Sox lose. He didn't hold anything back. He played his best. But he did take the money because it was given to him by Lefty Williams. So after those two break, another six players were indicted. And most of them signed away all of their immunity and never got lawyers because they were told that they didn't need them. And then the whole thing comes out and the players start talking about all of their roles. And then they start talking about all their co-conspirators and they're telling all of this shit to the grand jury. Now, when Shoeless Joe left the courthouse, there were a lot of fans out there that were really disappointed and, and heartbroken. You know, that this guy who was no question at that point in his career, not even, he was only in the league like nine years. At that point in his career, he was already a Hall of Famer because he was that good. So they're just, how could you do it, Joe? And there's one story that goes as he was walking out, one little boy comes up to him and cries out, say it ain't so, Joe, say it ain't so. You can see it in the movie, Eight Men Out. There's a reporter who said that happened. Okay, there is nobody else who says that happened. Supposedly, the family of this young kid who said that to Joe Jackson had came out later, and they're like, yeah, my dad told me that he said it, so I believe him. But Joe Jackson straight up said that he never talked to any kid. He never talked to anybody. And you can see film of them walking out of the courthouse and you can't see him talking to anybody. He doesn't stop for anybody. He's just walking out of the courthouse. There's actual film of this. And because of all this shit going on in Chicago, soon there's another name that appears in the papers, and it is the name Arnold Rothstein. 
And he shows up as the guy who backed the fix. And if there's one thing that Arnold Rothstein does not want, it is attention. He does not want anything to do with this shit. So he voluntarily travels to Chicago with his lawyer and straight up lies to the grand jury. There was no way he was going to get caught up in this shit. But he's right on the same side and the same mentality as Charles Comiskey. Alright, because Comiskey's worried about his reputation and his money because they're all tied up in this baseball team. If he loses this baseball team, he loses everything. And he was not going to let that happen. And as we know from part one, Comiskey was super popular in Chicago. But he was not only that, he was also very powerful in Cook County as well. So, Arnold Rothstein's lawyer meets up with Comiskey's lawyers. And everybody has a little meetup. And there was only one solution to this problem, and it was that they needed to make this all go away. They had to destroy all the evidence of the fix, and if they did that, there's no way there could ever be a trial. So, all of the transcripts from the baseball players' testimonies during the grand jury hearings somehow disappeared from the Cook County Courthouse. They even called Arnold Rothstein. After that... Arnold Rothstein just walks away unscathed because, like I said, he denied fucking everything. They just met together, came up with a solution for the problem. Now, Comiskey, he wasn't able to just walk away like that. He had to take some kind of action against the players. He suspends seven of them, the seven guys who are still on the team. But when he suspends them, he implies that as long as they're not found guilty and as long as they're exonerated... They'll just be reinstated right after all that's over with. So, after this whole grand jury thing, you have Gandal, Reisberg, Seacott, Williams, McMullen, Felsch, Jackson, and Weaver. They are all indicted, and they would be called to trial the following summer. And while the players are waiting to go to court the next summer, the owners of the teams are like, okay, we need to change something. There has to be some kind of structure here in the league. And they realize that maybe the American League with one president and the National League with one president probably wasn't the best way to run Major League Baseball. So they're trying to restore faith of the fans, and they're trying to gain stability. So they decided to appoint what is known as a commissioner of baseball. And the very first commissioner was a guy named Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He was out of Chicago. He was a federal judge, and he was a friend of baseball because he had ruled in favor against the Federal League in an antitrust case previously. They needed one guy over everything, and this was the perfect guy. So in January of 1921, Judge Landis becomes the commissioner of Major League Baseball, and they gave him absolute power. He went from being a district court judge in Chicago to what they described as the United States Supreme Court of Baseball. He had control over everyone and anyone who was a part of that organization. Now, before we get to the trial, we are going to stop and take a little ad break here. You can either hit that forward button or meet me back here in about four or five minutes. I will see you then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so when Judge Landis took office as commissioner, his only focus and his first focus was the upcoming trial, and he was bound and determined to eliminate any hint, any gossip, anything of gambling from the game of baseball. And like I had mentioned previously, Ban Johnson pulled his little tricks out and made sure that there was somebody involved to testify so that everybody could get indicted, but Charles Comiskey took it to the next level and he made sure everything was rigged. And the opening day of the case against the 
eight White Sox players, there were so many irregularities that they were never before seen in a court of law. A key member of the Cook County Prosecutor's Office, a guy named James O'Brien, he had all the information. He decides to jump sides and join the defense. So now he's sitting with one of the most high-powered, high-priced, and high-profile defense teams that had ever been assembled at that time. And all the baseball players, they don't know what the fuck's going on. They're just there, you know. I mean, they know what's going on. They know what they're on trial for. But at the same time, they're like, why is this uh, guy who was supposed to find us guilty now defending us? (laughs) What the fuck? It was a huge, very high-profile case. And there was a lot of media attention on this. There were crowds outside that were chanting and not really rioting or anything, but they wanted the players back on the field. They're like, fuck this. Like, this is horseshit. And there were a lot of fans that were packed into the courtroom as well. And one of the kickers is there was no law on the books in Illinois against fixing a baseball game or even throwing a baseball game for that matter. So what they were charged with was conspiracy to defraud the public, Charles Comiskey, and their own teammates. And the prosecution had to prove that in a court of law. There was one guy at this trial. One guy. Buck Weaver. He wanted an entirely separate trial. He wanted separate legal representation. He wanted to testify to clear his name, and he never had that opportunity. Because when it came down to it, it didn't seem to matter. Because all the key evidence had mysteriously disappeared from the Cook County Courthouse. Before the trial, like I had said, all the grand jury transcripts came up missing. And all they had left were copies of them. So, in terms of implicating all the defendants, all these eight White Sox players in this case, because they were copies, it was ruled inadmissible. They couldn't use those in court. So after that comes to light, Sheila Joe Jackson, Eddie Seacott, they recanted their original statements. None of the players testified, and there was now absolutely no evidence against them. And Judge Landis gave instructions to the jury, which required proof that the baseball players conspired to defraud the public, but it was impossible to prove in a single ballot by the jury. This trial took several weeks, but when it came time, the jury, in 2 hours and 47 minutes, came to a verdict, and these 8 White Sox players were acquitted. And as soon as the verdict was read, the entire courtroom just exploded. Just everybody's cheering, people are jumping up and down, throwing their hats in the air. It was just total chaos because everybody was happy. Even the jury were celebrating. Alright, they're all shaking each other's hands and shit, celebrating with everybody else. And everybody was really confident that all the acquitted players would be right back on the field for the 1922 season because Charles Comiskey had told them, hey, if you guys are acquitted or get found innocent, whatever the case is, I'm going to reinstate you. You know, I'm not going to suspend you. It's all we got to do is find you innocent. And obviously, Charles Comiskey, in this particular scenario... He broke a promise, but it really wasn't his fault. Because what nobody counted on was the judgment that would be rendered by Commissioner Landis the very next day. The Chicago Black Sox were acquitted in a court of law of defrauding the public, defrauding Kaminsky, and defrauding their teammates. But they were not acquitted when it came to baseball. Judge Landis said... Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player that undertakes the promises to throw a ball game, no player that sits in a conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball. Judge Landis had banned all eight accused from ever playing professional baseball again. Even Buck Weaver. Buck Weaver never took any money. He never received anything. He never played to lose. He played the best that he could. But he was banned because he knew about it. And the shitty thing is, he knew about it, but no matter who he told, 
nobody was going to do anything about it. So Buck Weaver really, I mean, just got fucked over because he told people. Everybody knew what was going on. Didn't matter if you told the owner of the White Sox or not. Nothing was going to happen. You could tell Ban Johnson nothing was going to happen at the time. That part pisses me off. Judge Landis ruled that knowledge of a fix was no different than participation in the fix. And when he gave that ruling, and I mean banned Buck Weaver, who didn't do anything, didn't take any money, this struck the fear of God into baseball. Because people realized at that point, holy shit, people did not want to lose their livelihood playing the game that they loved so much because somebody else on their team might have taken money and they knew about it. You know what I mean? After Judge Landis gave his verdict and banned them, Happy Felsch said, The joke seems to be on us. I got $5,000. I could have got that much by being on the level. Now I'm out of baseball forever. Now, you can take Judge Landis's ruling two ways. You could look at it as unfair because he basically judged everybody on the same spectrum, regardless of guilt. Or you can look at it as maybe this guy saved baseball by this strict verdict because there weren't too many scandals that came like this in the last hundred years, looking back. Judge Landis felt that it was important to let everybody know that no scandal, whether it was a rumor or not, would be tolerated. He was trying to build back the trust of the fans so that baseball could thrive and survive. And if he wouldn't have been that strict, I can't imagine what baseball would be like now. I wouldn't want to watch baseball if I knew somebody was probably bought off by gamblers. You know, he banned eight White Sox players from ever playing again. And by doing that, he set the ground rules for the next era of baseball until baseball ends. You know what I mean? Gambling in baseball was a mortal sin, and that was that. And when he did that, the whole old foundation of baseball kind of crumbled as well. The National Commission, which Ban Johnson, he had ruled over for like 20 years, just falls apart. And baseball now has Judge Landis, who is a hard-nosed dude. He loved the game. He wanted the game to be honest. And he's trying to look at the big picture of all of this. So, I mean, you can look at it two different ways. Now, ironically, this is perfect timing because after this happens in 1921 and going into the 1922 season, here comes Babe Ruth, and he essentially saved the game of baseball. At that time, he was what they needed because he was lightning in a bottle. He was hitting home runs. He was a character, but... Some people do say that if he wouldn't have come along when he did, that baseball might not have recovered after this. And one of the cool things is, without Shoeless Joe Jackson, it's hard telling if Babe Ruth would have been as successful as he was. Because Babe Ruth said, I copied my swing off of Shoeless Joe Jackson because he had the perfect swing. And that's how it is. So let's talk about what happens after they get banned from baseball. One of the biggest things about the eight guys getting banned from baseball, professional baseball, forever, was that they could no longer continue the only livelihood that they knew, which was playing baseball and making a career out of it. Let alone, any chance that you ever had of becoming a Hall of Famer was gone. Once you're on that list, you are banned from the Hall of Fame as well. But looking back, could you imagine some of these guys especially Shoeless Joe Jackson and Babe Ruth playing baseball on the same field together. Dude, even throw fucking Ty Cobb into the mix. Those two guys, those three guys, holy shit, man. Those guys still have records that stand a hundred years later. It's insane. It would have been spectacular just to, for them to play together. I mean, Ruth and, you know, Ty Cobb obviously did, but Shoeless Joe was out. A lot of these guys were headed for the Hall of Fame. They went from being on pedestals to 
barely surviving. The sad fact is they were acquitted in court of any wrongdoing. Don't get me wrong, you can give me the sob story about how they were acquitted in court, but please don't leave out that little section where Charles Comiskey rigged the trial and literally destroyed all the grand jury evidence before the trial. Don't leave that part out. Don't get me wrong, that's not the player's fault. But at the same time, we have to keep that in the back of our minds. A lot of these guys did find a way to play baseball, though. Most of them played baseball up until the uh, 1930s. They didn't go into hiding. They didn't give a shit. A lot of them played semi-pro ball. And they would actually exploit their fame from the Black Sox scandal. And they would do that to earn a living. One of the first things these guys did was they formed an outlaw team. And they were called the Southside Stars. They were also known as the ex-Major League Stars. And they would play games against local teams, amateurs, semi-pros, anybody who would play a game against them. These dudes were major league ball players or ex-ball players who were in the prime of their careers. All right, and they were going and playing against teams in any town that wanted to play against them or see them. They were promoting themselves. They had big crowds at the ballpark. That would increase their chances of getting bodies through the gate, which meant they would make more money. Joe Jackson has a pretty wild story here. In the summer of 1922, he shows up in Hackensack, New Jersey, and those fans got a nice treat watching this uh, new baseball player who was a slugger whose last name was Joseph. And everybody there was talking about how this guy hit the ball was just amazing. And it was Shoeless Joe Jackson. And he had gone up north a little bit, you know, to uh, play some baseball. And as soon as people found out who he was, the team was disqualified after they won. And for Joe, it wasn't really the fact that he was going to be making 20 bucks to play this game. He just wanted to play. So that is a pretty cool little story there. So let's talk about the later years now. In the years that followed, the eight men out settled in their respective communities. A lot of people say there was shame that hung over their heads, but I really don't see that being the case considering they were promoting themselves and going and playing any amateur team that they could, and they were promoting themselves as the Chicago Black Sox or the 1919 White Sox. Buck Weaver was probably the only exception to this. He stayed in Chicago. The rest of the guys just kind of went out around America after the Outlaw League, and they just kind of lived quiet lives. I think it was Chick Gandel who gave an interview in the 1950s to, I think it was Sports Illustrated, but it was a it was a higher-up uh, magazine, and he straight up laid out the details of everything, and he admitted that he was the ringleader. And a lot of times in the press, Shoeless Joe is always portrayed as beaten down, depressed, and this is not true. He returned to his hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, and he did pretty good for himself. He was running a liquor store. And Joe was arguably the most successful of all the eight guys. Even though he was banned from baseball, he was still embraced by other baseball players and fans. As a matter of fact, in 1947, this is 26 years after his ban, Ty Cobb himself stopped in that liquor store in Greenville, South Carolina to buy a fifth of bourbon. And Joe Jackson was behind the counter. Joe kind of played like he didn't recognize Ty Cobb. Ty looks at him and says, don't you recognize me, Joe? And Joe says, sure, I remember you. I just didn't think anyone from back then wanted to know me now. Which is, that is kind of sad. Is one of the curious cases because a lot of people say that Joe himself said he would play for free. He's like, if they just let me play again, I'll play for free. I don't even care. And that says a lot about how much he loved the game. Whether his role in the scandal was accurate or not, he loved the game of baseball. 
and it is said that the night Joe Jackson had a heart attack, he grabbed his brother David's hand and said, Good buddy, I'm going to meet the greatest umpire of all, and he'll judge me innocent. And one of the things about Jackson is that he's remembered for what he might have done in baseball. There's always the thought in the back of your mind, the little suspicion that he really didn't do it. He played to win or that he just didn't know what he was doing because he wasn't the smartest guy or that he unknowingly took the $5,000, whatever the case was. And like I had mentioned in part one, Joe Jackson was the what could have been or what might have been factor. Still today, Shoeless Joe is the only rookie ever to hit over 400. He had a 408, and he still has the third highest career average of all time. Let me rattle off some stats for you real quick and just tell you why this dude was important for baseball and such an amazing player. Shoeless Joe compiled a career batting average of 356 with 54 home runs and 785 RBIs in his 1,332 game career. In 1911, Jackson hit a 408 average. It is still the sixth highest single season total since 1901. His average that year also set the record for batting average in a single season by a rookie. Jackson still holds the Cleveland Indians and White Sox franchise records for triples in a season and career batting average. In 1999, almost 100 years later, he ranked number 35 on the sporting news list of the 100 greatest baseball players and was nominated as a finalist for the Major League Baseball All-Century team. The fans voted him as the 12th best outfielder of all time. He also ranks 33rd on the all-time list for non-pitchers. He did all of this in a nine-year career over a hundred years ago. Babe Ruth said that he modeled his hitting technique after Jackson. Ty Cobb said Jackson was the greatest pure hitter to ever play the game. And Shoeless Joe, with the exception of pitching, could play every position on the field. That is why Shoeless Joe Jackson is the story of what could have been. If this dude would have been able to play longer, it is crazy to think what he would have accomplished. Now, going on that, Shoeless Joe might be a little bit of an American tragedy. You know, just a sad, tragic story. Buck Weaver's is worse, and this one absolutely breaks my heart. He did not participate in throwing any of the games in the 1919 World Series. He did not take any money. He didn't want anything to do with it. He was a victim of the judge's punishment, which was to consider all of their actions the same rather than judge them on any degrees of guilt. Only thing he was guilty of was knowing the fix was in and not saying anything about it. But as we know, he more than likely did say something about it. And even if he didn't say anything about it, and he decided to, nobody cared. Nothing was ever going to get done about it. Buck Weaver was the only Black Sox player to stay and live the rest of his life in Chicago. He ended up doing a lot of uh, various odd jobs. One of the odd jobs that he had was painting during the day for the city of Chicago. And at one point, he had to paint the very courtroom that he sat in in 1921 and had been exonerated in, but yet banned from baseball forever. Reisberg and Felsch tried to get Buck Weaver to join them on the outlaw team in 1922, and Buck Weaver said, no, I'll be back in the majors soon. He filed petition after petition to Judge Landis to be reinstated begging to play baseball again because he did nothing wrong. He didn't take any money. He played his best. He gave 110%. Every single petition was denied. Until the day he died of a heart attack on a south side Chicago street in 1956, Buck Weaver never stopped trying to get reinstated. That is some heartbreaking shit. If there is anybody, anybody... Who needs to be reinstated. It is that guy right there. 
100% Buck Weaver. Now let's talk about a couple other people. Hugh Fullerton, when he helped expose the fix, wrote those articles, he lost his reputation. He was almost blackballed within the entire baseball industry. He was just trying to do his job as a sports writer and a journalist. And everybody was trying to cover up what he was trying to bring to light. Now Comiskey, the owner of the Chicago White Sox, he did not keep his franchise intact. Baseball was his entire life. And that's why he tried to keep this scandal under wraps. He didn't want it getting out. When he lost those eight players, that meant the Chicago White Sox were going to be a second division baseball team for decades afterward. In fact, it would take the White Sox more than eight decades before they would win a World Series again. And one of the sad ironies, this one's brutal too, is that little Dickie Kerr, and you guys remember me talking about him in part one, he was the hero he had pitched those two games, and he was an honest baseball player, and he won both of those games. He had a salary dispute with Comiskey two years later after the uh, scandal, and he refused to sign his contract on the grounds that he would not play for that little of money. So, Dickie Kerr also ended up becoming banned from baseball for the rest of his life, and he ended up playing outlaw baseball with the same guys who had sold out their team. Isn't that fucked up? I know you guys are probably thinking, why was he banned? Yeah, he wasn't even in on the mix. It was because of those take it or leave it contracts that I had talked about in part one with Charles Kaminsky. If he bought the rights to you, if he bought you as a player, he owned you. If you were not going to fulfill your contract, you were not going to play baseball. Unless somebody else bought you off of Comiskey, essentially. And Comiskey was a big enough fucking asshole that he's not going to sell you to anybody. He's basically going to tell you, All right, you don't want to sign this contract? Good fucking luck. I'm never going to sell your contract. You're never going to play in the major leagues ever again. And that is exactly what happened to him. So yeah, a lot of shit going on with this scandal. It's like uh, I was watching one documentary and they described it as an American Greek tragedy. Because you had the fans who were betrayed and then the repercussions of all of this shit were fast. And they affected everybody. And one of the things that sucks is that there were ball games that were fixed before and after this. And it was pretty much telling people, well, if you fix a couple regular games, it really doesn't matter. But just don't fix the World Series or you're never going to play baseball again. You look at it several different ways. Judge Landis more than likely strengthened baseball as a whole. And he brought it back. He brought the, the trust back into the game. He brought the fans' trust back into the game. And again, if it weren't for Babe Ruth coming along when he did... There were a lot of fans that probably never would have watched another game. They would have just left that sport by the wayside. As a matter of fact, in 1926, Ty Cobb, Hall of Famer, and his buddy Tris Speaker, they were accused of a fix as well. Judge Landis chose to ignore it. Ty Cobb blackmailed Landis because Landis knew that if Cobb and Speaker were convicted of gambling, that reflected badly on him. So he's not going to make himself look bad because he was supposedly the guy who had cleaned up baseball, when in fact he didn't. And because these eight guys were found innocent and acquitted in a court of law, because they never spoke and the original transcripts of their confessions to the grand jury were lost, this is why America has argued about those eight Chicago White Sox players for over a hundred years. And there you have your part two episode, the conclusion. Uh, let me state a couple sources we have in search of. Documentary, Triumph and Tragedy. Documentary, we have SouthsideSox.com. Uh, a couple other publications that I did mention in part one as well. So refer to that if you uh, are curious. But yeah, with all that behind us, ways you can get a hold of me. You can always email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can follow me on Instagram, Mysterious underscore podcast. I am on Facebook. Just type in Mysterious Circumstances. You can follow the page, like the page. You can join the Facebook group. Only thing is about the group, got to answer the questions or you will get denied entry. Um, Not really hard questions, I will say that. You can also follow me on Twitter at PodcastMC. And then we do have merch that I really never... (laughs) <laughs> never ever promote but i do have a lot of cool ass fucking merchandise it's a uh, tpublic.com slash mc podcast and then i have another one that is mcpodcast.threadless.com so a couple different sites there and yeah coming up here in the future i have two interviews for you one of them is a second interview with terry hobbs from the west memphis three case That one is actually going to be simultaneously uploaded when this one is, so you'll see that in your feed within seconds. Uh, The other one is with a good friend of mine, Brian Bowden, and me and him talked, I don't know, probably about like six months ago. We had a great interview, and if you're not a fan of the old Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell where, you know, he just sits down and we talk about all kinds of weird shit, uh, you're not going to like that interview. You won't like it because we talk about everything. Live show, April 23rd, Louisville, Kentucky. Last chance. You can either order tickets online or you can pay at the door. You can just show up. It's going to be a great time. It's me, Brohio, Hillbilly Horror Stories. We also invited some paranormal groups as well. So should be a really, really great time. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk about some weird shit. I am actually covering a John Doe case along with a mysterious case, like a mystery. So I have, I think, an hour time slot. and I can get both those in about a half an hour. Kind of get the best of both worlds. So I suppose with that being said, I will see you folks on the flip side. What's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now 